Welcome to the Drinking with the Saints podcast with Mike and Alexandra Foley. Where each week, we mix a bartender's guide with the lives of the saints to help you celebrate the feasts of the calendar with liturgically correct cocktails. Let's get started. Welcome to the Drinking with the Saints podcast. I'm Mike Foley. And I'm Alexandra Foley. And happy 12th Tide Saintly Sippers. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy Epiphany coming up. And we still say Merry Christmas because at least we Foley's are still in the midst of a very merry 12 days. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about the 12 days of Christmas during this episode. And we have to warn our listeners Things are going to get a little jiggy. Definitely a jiggy episode. Very jiggy. But we're sorry. We are custodians of the tradition, and we need to let you know what it's all about. We're probably going to lose a few listeners. No, we don't want to lose anybody. (laughs) Have an open mind while we talk about Mm -hmm. some things from the tradition of the 12 days of Christmas. That's right. We're very traditional. Indeed we are. And here we go. But we need to start with a drink. We're really going to need a strong drink. (laughs) To get through this episode. What do you have for me? All right. So during the 12 days of Christmas, you know, it's a lot of merriment, but you kind of get tired near the end. So we kind of are punting with what we call the duodecimal drummers be drumming old fashioned. That is a mouthful. Say it again. Duodecimal drummers be drumming old fashioned. Duodecimal 12. Got it. Duo, two, Deci, ten. I'm so smart. You got it. So drummers be drumming because we're going off the Christmas song. And the 12th day is the 12 drummers drumming. So the easy hack for this is you can just take any favorite cocktail and add... 12 ounces? (laughs) (laughs) You add a garnish. In this case, we're just taking uh, an old-fashioned and adding uh, a cherry at the end of a cocktail stick, and there's your drumstick. Wait, that's the whole recipe? I mean, that's... Well, so in uh, Drinking with St. Nick, I recommend Johnny Drum Bourbon, which has wonderful caramel notes. So that's a further tie-in to the theme of drummers be drumming. Okay. Is that hard to find? No, not too bad. All right. So tell me how to make the drink. I will. It is two ounces of Johnny Drum Bourbon. One teaspoon of simple syrup, a dash of bitters, Angostura or orange. We're using Angostura, and I said it right this time for once. I'm going to swirl them around. I already put the ice in two old-fashioned glasses, also called low balls. And then two Luxardo cherries, each impaled by a different cocktail stick to resemble drumstick. All right, the drink is ready. Stay with us, O Lord, for it is getting towards evening. And bless our drinks and our conversation and our listeners. And our season of Twelfth Tide together. Yay. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. We will devote another episode to singing the praises of the old-fashioned. Oh, yes. I'm an old-fashioned girl. Absolutely. But right now, we need to cut to the chase, although... We need to thank somebody for these cherries. Yes, we are. Um, so we suggest using uh, either Luxardo cherries or the Toshi ones we've mentioned before that we get on Am- Amazon that are Amarena cherries. Wonderful. 
But our beloved friend, Renee Clayton, made us these cherries. Hello, Renee. Hi, Renee. And we are going to read you the recipe. That's make a heavy syrup with two cups of sugar and one cup of water, heat it, and then put in pitted cherries and let the whole pot cool. Then you add one cup of brandy and one clove. You can add more if you want more clove. And then you marinate for six weeks. And they're really delicious. Mm. And then the pits are gone, though, in, in ours. Yes, they're pitted cherries. Oh, pitted. Sorry. Pitted means the pit's taken out. That doesn't make sense. It's not pitful. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Renee. These are delicious cherries. Excellent. All right, Alexandra. As you know, the 12 days of Christmas are historically a time of, quote, topsy-turvy customs. We get really topsy-turvy. Where everything is inverted in the social order. Right. But God, God becomes man. Everything is changed after that. Exactly. So at the end of the show, we're going to talk about the why. Why do these topsy-turvy things? But let's just go through the what. What are the categories that should be inverted or were inverted? All right. I have come up with seven categories <laughs> because I think everyone knows that I'm the brains behind this whole organization. These are definitely my topics, my categories. Go for it. Not just reading off a piece of paper you wrote down for me before. I would never do such a thing. <laughs> Give me my prompts. Okay. The first category is the rich and poor. Oh, yes. Remember the Magnificat? He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. And the rich he hath sent empty away. That's right. So, Boxing Day is an excellent example of the inversion of rich and poor. Right. The 26th. December 26th. Uh, especially in British Commonwealth countries, is known as Boxing Day. And one theory is for the name is that that is the day that the poor boxes of the churches were opened and the contents given to the poor. I remember asking my mom when I was young, why is it called Boxing Day? And I think it was even on the calendar. Like you just got a basic calendar and it had Boxing Day. And I, she said, I don't really know, but I think it's because it's the day after Christmas, so you get rid of all your boxes that day. And that's what I thought until uh, you told me probably 20 years ago, no, it's uh, breaking open the poor boxes because it's the, t the day to feed the poor. That is correct. Yeah. Which we have over the years tried to do that with some success. Um, but we used to go out and take like leftover sandwiches to, uh, around our city and feed the poor. Now we actually just do what a burger cards, <laughs> gift cards. <laughs> Which actually were more appreciated by the homeless folks. I know, we've got we a rebuff for our ham sandwiches a couple of times. That's okay. That's not, you're not doing it for praise. That's right. So tell us more about the rich and poor. Well, it kind of ties into maybe what you had on the list for your second category, master and servant. Uh, I'm sorry, this is my list. And I'm so sorry. I'll tell you what's next. Master and servant. So the other theory about Boxing Day is that in England, the masters would give special travel boxes to their servants for them to return home the day after Christmas. Oh, didn't that something like that happen in Downton Abbey? I'm thinking that as well. Yeah. Everything happened in Downton Abbey. There was some Christmas feast, and it may have been Epiphany. Maybe they just got that wrong. We'll get to Epiphany, but that they had on like an Epiphany ball, maybe. Anyway, I'm sure some of our listeners remember that because it was a really sweet scene. It was the servant's ball. Yes, exactly. Right, where the servants were fetid. That's right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So that ties into another topsy turvy custom. Which we, is? We are nailing we're it. We're blowing through these. <laughs> the, yeah, I feel like we're going to talk a lot about one of these categories more than the rest. Okay, the next one is enlisted and officer. 
So this is something that also survives in the Commonwealth countries. Uh, the British and Canadian armies I researched, and there are several customs where the enlisted and officers change places. So officers, for example, will make meals for the enlisted. And there's a tradition in the British army that if you are deployed overseas on Boxing Day, the officers present the enlisted with a special beverage in bed. They serve them in bed, and it's called a gunshot. Hmm. And it's a cup of tea with a shot of rum. Like first thing in the morning when they're in bed. Yep. Good morning. That's I know, Irish. The Irish, obviously. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> Obviously, the, uh, the officers are always Irish. Exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's nice. Okay. Yeah. Seems a little early for me, but yeah. that's okay. But it's another example of a social hierarchy getting inverted during the 12 days of Christmas. And we needn't go into pop culture too much, but there actually was an entire episode of MASH devoted to this. Oh, really? They had a lot of British wounded during this particular episode during the 12 days of Christmas. Mm-hmm. And so the American characters of MASH tried to imitate it. Oh, that's great. With hilarious results, because MASH was nothing but hilarious. Yeah, never sad. Um, exactly. They also... Uh, what a depressing sitcom. It was such a depressing... <laughs> can you really call it a sitcom? I, uh, it was situational. It was. it was like a dramedy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Situational dramedy. But yeah, they actually embodied several of the topsy-turvy customs, but we'll move on. That's exactly. <laughs> I clinger. think that takes us to Clinger <laughs> to our next one, which is the topsy-turvy men and women. Ah, uh, yes. So... During the 12 days of Christmas, there was a custom of cross-dressing where men and women would change clothes and change roles. One version of this was called mumming. Mumming was basically a form of trick-or-treating where you showed up disguised as best you could and you demanded a treat and in return you would sing songs and then eventually get kicked out. And would you do this on, on 12th night? On the 5th of January? It could happen any time during the 12 days of Christmas. But you are right, there is a special association with Twelfth Night, which is why William Shakespeare Mm -hmm. has a gender-bending play where it's a... Well, it's it's ironic that all the roles in Shakespeare's day were played by men. Right. So imagine Juliet being played by a man. I still don't get that. Juliet's a dude. But um, in Twelfth Night... The main character is a woman who's washed ashore who has to disguise herself as a man in order to survive. So it's a man playing a woman playing a man. Right. (laughs) There's a lot of turvy in that. A lot of turvy indeed. (laughs) So Twelfth Night parties were once a staple of medieval England, and it was an opportunity to walk a mile in the other's moccasins. It is my favorite of the customs of the topsy-turvy is the um, men and women on Twelfth Night. It's just so fun. So are you admitting before our listeners that we have observed a Twelfth Night custom? We have a long, long enjoyed this with our children. You know, the, remember like my, our, one of our sons being really little, mommy's high heels, <laughs> you know, one of the girls' <laughs> dress. Yeah, it just, it's so fun. It's more fun for the men in a way because to dress like nowadays, you know, women actually dress like men a lot of the time. Currently, I'm wearing jeans and a, and a shirt, like pretty much could pass. Um, but for the for the boys, we have three boys and three girls. It's just so fun for them 
to be like, yeah, I'm going to put on the girl's dress and they put on makeup. Sometimes there's a wig involved. Well, we're getting incredibly specific. <laughs> incredibly specific. Um, that makeup, and it just, it's like, you know, they see their sisters do this kind of stuff or they see their mom do it. And then for them to actually engage in it, they're like, wow, so mascara kind of hurts your eyes. And these shoes, this is really tough. So the basic point is that it does not induce any kind of gender confusion. It is an opportunity in a sense to kind of make fun of the opposite sex. But at the same time, you appreciate what they have to go through. Right. You're walking a mile in their moccasins. Exactly. Remember when one year I, wore, I was wearing a tie, of course, because we dress nice. We try to. <laughs> and uh, it was just like, you know, the whole night I was like, oh, so this is like tight around my neck the entire night. This is what you guys do all the time. I understand now when you come home from mass, why you like yank the tie out. It's like a noose, man. And women's shoes. What a mortification you go through. Such a mortification. One year, I remember we did this. It was very, very cold here in Texas. And we had uh, one other couple over that night and the men were freezing. <laughs> and the women were just like so cozy in our many, many layers. And then we're like, oh, can, I get, can I get a blanket? Why am I so cold all the time? Like, you know, that's the stereotype of women. They're like, they're always cold. Well, like, yeah, well, we're wearing a dress sometimes. Our legs are exposed. And paradoxically, it also is a re reinforcement of traditional norms of modesty. Oh, I love this. So one year... One of our daughters had a dress I really did not care for. It was too short, in my opinion, on her. And she was, was a lot shorter than Mike. And the shoulders were kind of like split open in a way. I just did not like this dress. And so for 12th night, Mike wore that one. Yeah, not knowing uh, how women deal with these sorts of things. Right. I, <laughs> how to deal I, with a short dress. I bent over to get a snack. And there were a couple of friends sitting behind me. And as soon as I bent over her, this, whoa, whoa. Dude, dude. <laughs> so Right, you, you have to bend your knees. <laughs> on the plus side. Right, our, she never our, wore that dress again. never wore that dress again. So It was a very gentle way of being like, you know, this is what it looks like. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And everything looks like cartoonish on you. Yeah. I did have a very pretty dress of mine that you wore a couple years ago, and you managed to split a seam. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't have so your You're so incredibly manly. <laughs> Your manly pecs split it open. I was a, like seven months later, I put it on. I was like, how did I rip this dress? Couldn't figure it out for weeks. And then I was like, oh, I know. I'm sorry. Twelfth night. <laughs> but anyway, we like to do a little party. And it's it's for, you know, for our family and for the select few of friends who, you know, you're not going to force your friends to do something they don't aren't into. We absolutely understand this is not for everyone. So we've had our own experiences. We had some wonderful neighbors who were evangelical Protestants, and we invited them over one year. And they did. They were game. Uh, they had a great sense of humor. Brought the kids, yeah. They showed up, uh, and uh, the father said to me, we weren't certain this was actually a thing. We were thinking this was just going to be punk the Protestants. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and God bless him for being like, I think I'm about to be punked, but I'm, I'm committing to the bit. Exactly. And so he they, was decked out. They did show up. It was really funny. But you could kind of tell they were uncomfortable the whole night. Yeah. So we understand it's we not for everyone. It's not for everyone. Yeah. But we have, we have a merry old time. Exactly. I just think it's good for kids. The thing to remember, by the way, for those who are biblically oriented, which is a good thing to be, this is not a violation of the prohibition against cross-dressing in the Old Testament oh. because it is a form of domestic theater. It's a form of pageantry. And, you know, what we already talked about, the medieval theater only had men 
impersonating women on the stage. For its own set of reasons, yeah. Exactly. So when it's a form of theater, it's not something perverse. That makes sense to me. Yeah. And it's just really fun. (laughs) I just love it because Mike does the planning for the party. I usually, as the hostess, usually plan those things. And he often plans the party and provides the food and recognizes that hosting is really quite tiring. And it's kind of fun to imitate the mannerisms of your spouse because you you kind of see how the other sees you during the rest of the year. I always like put my leg up on, not that Mike ever does this, but I like to put like sit like a man, put my leg up on the table. Mike <laughs> doesn't do that, but hey, on Twelfth Night, I do it. Excellent. And it's, it's actually just my favorite. I just love it. Get to be a man, get to be like aggressive. And then, you know, Mike try, tries to act more feminine. More coquettish, actually. That's my goal. <laughs> The one thing I really don't like is when you wear a wig. (laughs) All right, I think we've said enough now. I think more than enough. All right. (laughs) Do you have any more categories for you? I have three more. The next one is parent and child. Ah, yes. So there are a couple of these. The big one is Childermas, the Feast of the Holy Innocents. So in monasteries... The youngest novice would be abbot for the day. Hmm. And in families, the youngest child would be in charge of the day. And so for us, what it looks like is, well, we it's topsy-turvy that the children get to rule. They get to decide what's, what to eat. We do all of their chores. We have noticed, though, that it's basically like a free day for the kids where we do all of their chores and they stay in their jammies and watch movies. But I will say it makes me really grateful for all the things that the kids do. Just So it was just last Wednesday, I think. And by the end of the day, I was like, this is exhausting. I mean, I did all of their chores. They did not make dinner, but, you know, it's for the kids. For the kids. You no, know, for the kids. Exactly. It, it's super fun. I would say that and Twelfth Night are my two favorites. I mean, yeah. we don't really have an officer and master, officer and enlisted, enlisted yeah. um, tradition. Well, we're not military. No. All right. So the next category is laity and clergy. Yes. So there are several things about this. One is a wonderful tradition that's no longer around except in one cathedral in England, uh, Anglican cathedral, but it's called the boy bishop. And a boy would be appointed bishop. He would give the homily during solemn vespers. He had little boy bishop vestments and that's adorable. Actually, we have little boy vestment, priest vestments. Priest. Well, no, we have uh, bishop vestments from. Oh, Saint Nicholas. Saint Nicholas, right? Yeah. From, uh, all all right. saints. Yeah. Not too bad. Oh, I love just dressing up. So it was one of those medieval customs, like so many medieval customs, that got out of hand, and so one of the complaints was that the boy bishop and his friends would basically empty the church kitty for all kinds of merriment. They would like take the money. Yeah. And then spend it on stuff? They would just go extravagant. Like they'd run to the candy store? Kind of, yeah. So they would like deplete the church's budget. <laughs> right, this is a good time to talk about how we love these topsy-turvy traditions, but you know, you have to have boundaries in all things. <laughs> exactly. But in that respect, frankly, they weren't too different from their medieval adult counterparts. <laughs> yeah, this is what it feels like, by the way, Bishop, when someone just uses misappropriates funds in some way. Exactly. But it did have a touching side. Uh, There was a case in medieval England where the boy bishop died during the 12 days of Christmas, and the church gave him 
the funeral of a bishop. Oh. And and buried him in the cathedral. That's a that's so sweet. It seems canonically questionable, but of course. But okay. But how sweet. How sweet. Yeah, yeah. like a, a boy stricken down by death. Oh. And they gave Christmas. him a, a pontifical requiem mass. Well, let us ask that boy bishop to pray for us. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. On our topsy turvy traditions. Okay, last category. Yeah. Animal and human. Oh yeah. So. Horses were treated with special kindness on St. Stephen's Day. I remember there was something about eating oatmeal because it was horse food. Yes, and you could also do that on Childermas because it's children's food. So on, on Childermas, just to go back, we usually um, do cream of wheat because it's yeah. like a pavlum, like baby food. That's right. So everyone has for cream, cream of wheat for breakfast. But on St. Stephen's Day for a couple of years, we were doing either I'd like make oat bars or something, but we would eat oat because it was horse food. Yep. So according to St. Francis of Assisi, you're supposed to be kind to your livestock during the whole 12 days of Christmas. You, oh, you, good. Just for 12 days. Phew. You, you, well, you, you don't make them work. You give them extra oats and hay. Oh. Um, you're extra nice to your horse on St. Stephen's Day. But then there was this also this custom in France called the Feast of the Ass. Okay. And with the Feast of the Ass, you honored the role of the donkey in salvation oh, in history. Yeah. Exactly, because it was presumably a donkey that brought the Holy Family down to Bethlehem. There was a donkey in the stable, according to tradition. And of course, it is a donkey that brings our Lord mm, into Jerusalem. Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So... They would have this procession of a wooden donkey. They would lead it into the church. They'd put the statue in front of, in the sanctuary near the altar. Okay. They'd have a regular mass. And then at the end, instead of saying, the priest saying, Ite misa est, go, uh -oh. the mass is ended. No, no, go on. Uh oh, scared. The priest mm -hmm. would bray three times. Stop. And instead of saying, Deo gratias. Nope. The congregation would say "hee haw" three times. <laughs> I honestly, I think you're making that up. It's like Sam Wainwright from "It's a Wonderful right, Life." Exactly. Hee -haw. I was also thinking about one time we were at mass at a beach town, and the priest at the end and said, instead of saying "go in peace," he said, "Let's go to the beach." Yeah, it's so sad. Like that's that. a different kind of feast of the ass. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those th those kind of like childhood memories that I was like, something ain't right. Yeah, and made me seek out a more traditional liturgy when I was an adult. So, needless to say, yeah, we're the not feast in favor of the of ass. All of those. Well, nor were church officials. It was very popular in France, <laughs> but uh, church officials were not very pleased with the feast of the ass. Yeah, I'm getting that. Yeah. They also weren't terribly happy with other sorts of categories. Uh, besides the boy bishop, in England, there was somebody appointed called the Lord of Misrule. Okay. And in sounds Scotland, like it was the Abbot of Unreason. <laughs> <laughs> Again, sounds like your youngest. <laughs> the yes. Abbot of Unreason, that's yes. really funny. Yes, so he was in charge of all the topsy-turvy mayhem for the 12 days of Christmas. So why, Mike? Like, this brings us to, why is this a good thing? Why overturn the apple cart? There are three reasons, Alexandra. Always in threes with you, Mike. Always. Are you ready? I'm ready. The first is, these customs serve as an important safety valve in social hierarchies. Mm. And I know we live in an egalitarian age, mm -hmm. but let's be honest, there are still hierarchies. 
There are hierarchies between the powerful and the less powerful, the rich and the poor. And there's always going to be a healthy hierarchy in a family. Right. I hate that the word hierarchy is considered to be bad right now because creation is hierarchical. Absolutely. And, and, and super and supernature is. Creation is hierarchical. Supernature is hierarchical. And social orders are inevitably hierarchical. Inevitably, you can't get away from it. Even it's in natural. an egalitarian society, we don't like the word, but we still have hierarchical practices. Right. And those practices, Cause even tension. if they're just, mm-hmm. even if they're just, build tensions. Mm-hmm. And so these 12 days are a way of taking the pressure off those tensions. I, I really feel that in our own family, that the 12 days of topsy-turvy, it's just sort of a release valve for everyone. Yeah. yeah. So during the rest of the year, you know, daddy is the onerous uh, executor of the law. And then the kids see him be silly mm-hmm. and humiliate himself. Right. And I and think that that's wig, healthy. That wig I mentioned is really humiliating. I think it's beautiful. Not to mention me. some of the things you've worn. <laughs> no, it's good to see as human too. Heavy as the head. I always, you know, like, I think heavy is the head that wears a neck. Sorry. <laughs> Did I get that right? <laughs> Heavy is the head that wears the crown. <laughs> I was conflating. Big, You're the head and exactly. I am the neck. <laughs> heavy is the head that wears the crown. Yeah, that would be truly topsy-turvy to have the head ugh, wear the neck. Gross. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. It is It, it is hard to rule. We've talked about this in the past with like our um, saints who were also kings. It is a difficult job to be the one in charge. And when the lowers think that it's all all wonderful. Well, wear the crown for a day. That's exactly right. So this brings us to the second reason, which is the value of these customs is you get to walk a mile in the moccasins of the other. Mm-hmm. And you get, and as a result of that, you gain a whole new empathy right. for the roles that they have to play in their daily lives. It's just so, so, it's so true. So you know that there is a whole genre of movies called body swap movies. Oh, yes. Freaky Friday... So what's always the lesson in these body swap movies? It's hard to be Jamie Lee Curtis. (laughs) It's hard to be Lindsay Lohan. Yeah, exactly. So you learn, you you gain a certain empathy, like, oh, you've got it so easy being the mom. You've got it so easy being the daughter. Mm -hmm. No, No, walk a mile. So this is what you get to do with these topsy-turvy customs. Yeah. It's a good reminder. we We have teenagers, teenager daughters, maybe are sometimes really difficult, <laughs> but you kind of don't know what they're really going through and to try to get inside them and um, walk a mile in their moccasins. Remember what it was like to be 14? Yeah, exactly. Not to be very specific about our <laughs> <Exactly>. kids. <laughs> I don't know. Exactly. So our final reason is theological. Okay. So there actually are pre-Christian traditions of topsy-turvy customs. There apparently was one in ancient Mesopotamia, and of course, the Roman Saturnalia, which also happened in December, was a time of social inversion in the Roman Empire. But these customs take on a whole new meaning in light of the Incarnation, which is the ultimate inversion. It's unbelievable. God the Creator becomes a helpless infant in a manger. Like there's nothing more helpless than a baby in a manger. Actually, the only thing more helpless than a baby in a manger is a piece of bread in a box. Yeah. Like that Eucharist, like just 
and then he becomes a piece of bread in a box, looking like a piece of bread. Almighty God becomes vulnerable. Yeah, to make us love him more. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. The king of kings becomes a servant. Right. Right? So this is a huge inversion. And there's a great line in the Acts of the Apostles where Jews in Thessalonica are complaining about the Christians, and they report to the Roman authorities these Christians have turned the world upside down. Hmm. These Christians are inverting everything. Yeah, because yeah. because God did. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the theological reason to respect the topsy-turvy customs is that they are a giddy imitation mm-hmm. of the ultimate inversion of the incarnation, which is the reason for the season. God becomes man so that man can become like God. Exactly. And something else I read was that God said, why does man not love me? I will make myself known to him as a human. It's just so beautiful. Exactly. He, he took on humanity so for we're the not, sake of love. So we're not saying every one of these customs needs to be resurrected, but there is something healthy in these bizarre practices. Yeah. And it's a marial time. Exactly. It's, it's been a great 12 days for us of family merriment and... Just a time to be together and rejoice in the incredible gift of the Incarnation. Absolutely. Yeah. So we wish you all a merry 12th tide to your health and holiness. Cheers. Thank you for joining us. Please get in touch with us via email at podcast at drinkingwiththesaints.com. Or on our Instagram page at Drinking Saints. And find Drinking with the Saints book series at drinkingwiththesaints.com or wherever fine books are sold. The Drinking with the Saints podcast is produced by Back Row Media.